mention something. This is Bob Wart, and Bob Wart has been a member here for a long Samuel, continuing in chapter 5 today. It's where we left off uh, last week just to review what we did. Uh, David had been in Hebron in the south. He established it at his, as his capital city. He was uh, serving as the king of Judah. Then Judah, southern tribe, united with the northern tribes of Israel and uh, formed a united monarchy under David's kingship and rule. David saw fit, therefore, to... Hey, is that Gafford? Thomas! How are you, baby? Excuse me, folks. I get carried away. It's Thomas Gafford. It's about time you come to church. Thomas, is that your wife next to you? What are you going to do now? What are you going to do? Thomas plays in the NFL, and uh, every once in a while reads the Bible. And there you go. That's what Thomas used to do to me many times before, and he has now traumatized me once again. Is there a chiropractor in the house? Goodness say you, Thomas. Do your parents know you're here? Okay, they don't have to. We have other people they could sit next. How long are you going to be here? What are you doing? All right. Gafford, he's as as bad as ever. I don't even know why I acknowledge his presence. So anyway, 2 Samuel 5. Thomas, we're in the Bible. This will be good for you. Uh, David moved his capital, uh, we spoke about it last week, to Jerusalem because it's in a central location. It was a good political maneuver, kind of uh, in the center of the southern and northern tribes, bring them together, etc., etc. However, there was a people group already there called the Jebusites. They had a place, uh, the city called Jebus, before it was called Jerusalem. I told you it was quite a defendable place, surrounded by three valleys and an elevated area. This map will give you kind of an idea what I'm talking about. So you see on the left side, is it the left side? What side is that? Left side of your map, to the west, a central valley. That's one of the valleys. If you dip down to the bottom off the map is a second valley. And then if you come up on the right side of the map, you see the Kidron Valley? So that particular city, can you see it's elevated? It is walled. Many people have tried to conquer it before David is going to make his attempt. They all failed. And so the Jebusites there in mockery say to David, who do you think you are? Even the blind and lame amongst us can deal with you. So uh, that's kind of what's happening. Now, there was a bit of a weak... Well, you see on top where it says Mount Moriah? Anyone know what happened on Mount Moriah? Okay, good. You came to a good place. I do. Uh, That's where Abraham was asked to offer up his son Isaac. Remember that? And God provided the lamb. Today, Mount Moriah, who knows what's on Mount Moriah today? Anybody? Yeah, the Dome of the Rock. It's a golden domed um, structure. It's a Muslim. It's not actually a mosque. It's a monument. Uh, Islamic people built in the 6th, 7th century Um, And it's over a bedrock on which it is thought that Abraham was prepared to offer not Isaac in sacrifice, but according to the Quran, Ishmael in sacrifice. Isn't that an interesting uh, editorial uh, modification of scripture? Not Isaac, but 
but Ishmael. So that's Mount Moriah up there. A little bit to the south is this city, Jebus, which will become Jerusalem or David's city. Now, they had a bit of a problem. Any city needs a water source. They had one. It's right here, the Gihon Springs. Gihon Springs. The problem is, how do you leave your walled city? It's defenses and go out to get water your enemy can wait until you do that and then you can be slaughtered that way so they built a citadel or walled structure a tower around the Gihon spring and under it they carved into the bedrock a water shaft uh, a a system a channel by which water from the Gihon spring can flow into the city and thus they could access water without making themselves vulnerable by going out to the Gihon Spring. David somehow figured this out. And therefore, we read now in 2 Samuel 5, verse 8, this. David said on that day, whoever would strike the Jebusites, let him reach the lame and the blind who are hated by David's soul through the water tunnel. There it is. Therefore, they say, the blind or the lame shall not come into the house. I don't know exactly what that means, except it's a sarcastic response by David with regard to the taunts by the Jebusites. David is not seeking to show disrespect to disabled people. He's using what was thrown at him, and in a way we don't fully understand thousands of years removed, he's throwing it back at them. The part I really want you to see is where David said, through the water tunnel. And so David somehow figured out, as I mentioned, there was a water tunnel from the Gihon Springs, which could give his soldiers, his army, access to the city. In 1867, something was discovered. It's called Warren's Shaft. And I'll show you. I'll tell you what. I'll, did I go to that side before? Yeah, I'll go to this side. I want to show equal time here. Um, Joab, according to First Chronicles, was one of David's key soldiers, commander of his army. Joab entered into the Gihon Spring area over here, discovered this water shaft leading into the city, and he probably entered it through this vertical shaft. You can't see it too well. I'll show you on another line. It's about 50 feet in height. And so it, it came to be called, is to this day, Warren's Shaft, because in 1867, a British guy named Charles Warren found it. He discovered it and painstakingly made his way up Warren's Shaft, that vertical shaft, into the city and thus explained what we have read about in 2 Samuel 5, verse 8. Here's an idea of what Warren's Shaft looks like from the top looking down. So it goes down about 50 feet. You get to a water level. It's through this vertical shaft. It is thought that David's men gained access to this otherwise impregnable city. Here's a little shot of, a, of one of the water channels still in existence today. There's still water in it. Uh, it was carved out by hand. You can still see the strokes on the walls today that were used in the carving of this. Um, Canaanites, 
Jebusites, remember we spoke about it, our branch of the Canaanites, first carved out this tunnel. And about 300 years later, Hezekiah carved out one essentially parallel to the Canaanite one. When we go to Israel, you can go through this wet tunnel. We usually do not. We go through the Canaanite dry tunnel because it's just easier to do that, and then you don't get wet, and it's actually older than this particular tunnel which you're looking at uh, right now. So it's a pretty ingenious military strategy that was revealed to David. How? Well, I think by Almighty God, nobody discovered this means of access into Jebus until David did, and he successfully used this water channel in order to conquer the city. Now, to give you a more specific idea of how he did it, I want to show you a video. It lasts about four minutes and 40-some-odd seconds. It has some Hebrew in it because it's from Israel. It was produced in Israel. But don't worry about the Hebrew. Even though you don't understand the Hebrew, you'll still... Most of it is in English, and you'll get the idea. I just want you to see a little more specifically how David probably did this. So if we can get this to work, then uh, hang on just a second. It takes, oh, yeah. Give this your attention. Thanks, Aaron. About 3,000 years ago, David, son of Jesse, is crowned king of Israel. This is the beginning of the royal house of David. David decides that Jerusalem, positioned at the heart of the Israelite territory, will be the capital of his kingdom. But Jerusalem is a powerful and intimidating Canaanite city, and until David's time, no tribe has been able to conquer it. Now, once again, Confident of their fortifications, the Jebusites take up positions on the city walls. The young King David challenges the complacent enemy. He is determined. This time, Jerusalem must fall. I am standing on the Israeli of David. Here, in 1995, האבנים האלה, שכל אחת מהן שוקלת מספר רב של טונות, הן חלק ממגדל עצום שנבנה ממש כאן בסמוך למעיין הגיחון. You shall not come in here. The Jebusites mock David. They station blind and lame men on the city walls. The message is clear. The city is so strong that even the blind and the lame can easily defend it. דוד מבין שבדרכים מקובלות הוא לא יצליח לכבוש את העיר. פה צריך לחשוב מחוץ לקופסה. בראש שלו כבר נרקמת מזימה. He promises the esteemed position of head of the army to the soldier who dares to volunteer for this dangerous mission and succeeds. One man rises to the challenge, Joab ben Zeruya, a tough and daring soldier. But what is the mission? In his challenge, David uses two mysterious words. Veiga batzinor. What is this tzinor that David is referring to? Thousands of years later, a fascinating discovery was made, shedding light on the mysterious tzinor. In 1867, the archaeologist Captain Charles Warren crawled through a tunnel near the Gihon Spring. About 20 meters from the spring, 
Warren discovered a vertical shaft that rose to a height of 13 meters above his head. With great effort, Warren climbed to the top of the shaft, where, to his amazement, he discovered that the tunnel continued to rise steeply until it reached the city above. Warren evin miyad shelefanav mifal maim sodi shenivna lifnei alfei shanim. Atichnun ayem etuchkam biyoter. Aknanim yadu shenikudat atorva sheliram yamayan shenimtzam mechutz lechomot ha'ir. They built a great citadel around the spring and dug a tunnel down from the city above to the citadel surrounding the spring. David Megaleh, the Pifal he sends Joah ben Suriah through this tunnel to infiltrate the city. After Job exits the tunnel, he runs down to the city gates. The Jubicide soldiers fail to notice him. Job reaches the city gates and opens them with great force. Before the Jubicides can grasp what has happened, David's soldiers burst through the gates and take the city by surprise. But David captured the fortress of Zion, which is the city of David. So there you have it. That's how David gained entrance into Jebus, made it his capital. Uh, it was renamed Jerusalem. Uh, ironically, the city of peace, though the city has seen little of it in all of its existence. It's about 3,000 years old, and so uh, the claim to Jerusalem as Israel's capital today is not a new and novel one. It's uh, ancient. It's 3,000 years old. It's biblical, and it's historically verifiable that David constructed his palace there. In fact, if you go to the city of David today, you can see the remains of his palace, his uh, palaces, fortifications, and all kinds of archaeological finds have been discovered to justify the uh, ancient Jewish presence in, in the land. Okay, so verse 9 says, David lived in the stronghold, a reference to Jebus, and called it the city of David. And David built all around from the Milo and inward. So what's that? The city uh, extended itself about 12 acres in ancient days, Jebus, but it wasn't enough territory to be David's capital. He had administrative and governmental buildings that needed to be housed uh, on this side. And so the Milo means filling. He filled in the land with rock and rubble and dirt so as to create a plateau much more sizable than it existed uh, when he first came to Jebus. And so um, the Milo, they're supporting terraces. In fact, here's a, an example of one that you can see there even today. This is one of the structures that David built. You can see it's a stone terrace, and it it's kind of a retaining sort of a wall. On the inside of it, as I say, he filled it with dirt and rubble so that he could build upon it. 
And you can see things like this in Israel today. So verse 10 says, David became greater and greater for the Lord God of hosts was with him. There's no explanation. Why did David have success where others did not experience it? It didn't have much to do with any inherent virtue in David's life. It had to do with his relationship with the creator. Almighty God was with him, and therefore David had success. In fact, he had success to such extent that, according to verse 11, Hiram, king of Tyre, sent messengers to him with cedar trees, carpenters, and stonemasons, and they built a house for David. So to give you an idea of what we're talking about here, Again, just let me give you a geographic frame of reference. To the bottom left, you can see is Egypt. If you dip around toward the right, you run into Edom, and then above it, Moab, and then Ammon. That would be present-day Jordan. Jordan. You see this water feature, a long one. It's called the Dead Sea. And up from it, you see a line. It's a faint kind of a pink line. It runs north and south. That's the Jordan River. The Jordan River is a natural boundary. It was then and is today between Israel on the left side or on the west of the Jordan River and then Jordan and Syria on the right or east side of the Jordan River. So then you see Judah here, this purple area. That's where the tribe of Judah was allotted territory, and that's where David initially set up his capital in Hebron. But then he went further up to Jerusalem. So you can see Jerusalem is kind of on the border between the northern tribes of Israel and the southern tribe of Judah. That's where he established his capital. On the left side in green along the water, the Mediterranean coast, you see the word Philistines. That's where they hung out. That's where Goliath is from. Five main Philistine cities are there. It's today uh, what's called Gaza or the Gaza Strip, which we read about quite a lot in the news. That's in Philistine territory. And then if you go all the way up, you see where it says Aram on the right? It's a big green area. That's Syria, which is, of course, in the news quite a bit today. And to the left of Aram, there's a strip in yellow along the Mediterranean Sea called Phoenicia. The Phoenician people uh, uh, came and built up quite an empire over there. Does anyone happen to know what modern-day uh, country is in present, is in ancient Phoenicia? Yeah, that's Lebanon. That is Lebanon. So you can see where Tyre, we're told this guy Hiram came from Tyre. You can see it uh, if you have good eyes, over there. And then above it is Sidon or Sidon. It's about 20 or 25 miles north of Tyre. Tyre and Sidon were the main cities of the Phoenician Empire, which was quite powerful uh, and rich in those days. Therefore, for David to be acknowledged as king of Israel by the king of Uh, Phoenicia, Hiram, was a big deal. It was such a big deal that David comes to a realization, which we're told about in verse 12. David realized that the Lord had established him as king over Israel and that he had exalted his kingdom for the sake 
of his people, Israel. David suddenly realized that what's going on here is not that he's so hot, but that God had established and exalted him for the purpose of his people, Israel, not for his own advancement, but to serve the people. And this is something anybody who would serve in the kingdom of God has to recognize. The servant leader of Almighty God has to know that he or she is established and exalted for one purpose. It's for the sake of God's people whom you serve. It's not for one's own sake. When a minister or anyone else lets it go to his or her head and starts naming stuff after themselves and letting their ministry um, lift them up, they're missing the whole point. The only reason God has established and exalted anybody in the ministry is for the sake of his people, to serve his people. It's not due to any inherent thing that the minister can boast in. It's due to the sovereignty of God. And David realized this when he was recognized by Hiram as being the king of Israel. Somehow the penny or as they would say, the shekel dropped. And David realized, holy Toledo, I am in this spot by the grace of God, and I must live so as to serve God's people. So, verse 13, meanwhile, David took more concubines and wives from Jerusalem after he came from Hebron, and more sons and daughters were born to David. Now, why did he do this? He did it because he liked sex. So there you have it. Now, let's move on. I mean, that's why he did it, for crying out loud. God made them male and female. But he did it for other reasons. Your, uh, the number of your wives and concubines in that day was a measure of your status and prestige. All leaders of countries built up for themselves a big harem of women, not just for sexual purposes, but for status. David also did it for political reasons. He probably took some of these ladies from Jerusalem from very prestigious aristocratic families, and thus those families would be owned into David's kingship. I mean, after all, if your daughter's married to the guy, you want to support the guy. Now, this makes a lot of sense, except it was entirely contrary to the will of God. And all I have to do is show you one measly old verse about it. Deuteronomy 17, 17, God said before the Israelites entered the land, no matter who the king was, he, whoever the king is, must not take many wives or his heart will be led astray. He must not accumulate large amounts of silver and gold. You have to be really careful. If you have church leadership that financially is so far beyond the mean income of the rest of the folks, that person runs the risk of getting financially out of touch. You have to be really, really careful about that. A pastor's income, any staff person's income, should be the median between the low income of its members and its high. It should be somewhere in the middle there. But if, you, if you're way too low, that's not good. If you're way too high, you're equally distracted. So you have to be careful about that. By the way, even though this was societally acceptable in David's day, you will see, and you may already know, you'll see as we continue in 2 Samuel in the weeks ahead, one of David's biggest heartbreaks came from his many wives and his wayward children. Here was a successful military commander, but he was quite 
unsuccessful on the domestic front. And guys, I speak to you, we're prone to this. We derive a lot of satisfaction from outside the home endeavors. We get uh, our uh, points and the sense of satisfaction too much from our vocation outside the home. And we could be quite successful outside the home, even in the ministry, while things in the home are falling apart. And folks, if your family goes, you got nothing. No matter how successful you are outside the home, if the family goes, you're, you're not successful. You're a failure. So, so uh, David was... Well, David failed on the home front. And I think, I think instead of seeing himself to be distinct as God's chosen, he sought himself to fit in. But folks, nowhere in the Bible are we called to fit in. In fact, we're called to be set apart. So you have these big theological terms. One is justification. That happens when you accept Christ. It's a legal pronouncement. You're considered as one who is innocent. Then what happens is that event starts a process called sanctification. That's a process. It doesn't happen overnight. I wish it did, but it didn't. That's what we're experiencing now, flesh versus spirit, where we're seeking to be holy as God is holy. None of us do that all, all that well, except God in us is really helping us in the sanctification uh, process. And that word means to be set apart. He did not call us to fit in. I've noticed in the last few decades, I shared this before, and maybe I'm wrong. It's just an observation. The church, we church people have been on a quest to be relevant. That's the operative word, relevant in our classes, in our preaching, all the rest. We want to fit in, you see, with the surrounding society to attract them to Christ. Uh, uh, To me, the opposite has happened. We have not rubbed off on them. They have rubbed off on us. And so for a lot of us, we are indistinguishable from the outside world out there. Statistically, with regard to all manner of things, we look just like everyone else. We have succeeded in being so relevant that the salt has lost its savor. I think God called us to be different, to be uh, sanctified and weird. Yeah, I think when we're accepted by everyone around us, it's, it's because we're not living for Christ. We're fitting in. I think a better thing to do would be so passionate and devoted to Christ that we look different, odd. We don't look like the statistical norm. People see a difference. Why would they be attracted to our Christ when we don't seem to be manifesting much of a difference in claiming to know him? So David... Just fit in and did what everyone else, all the other kings were doing when, in fact, God called them to stand apart. Now, these, verse 14, are the names of those who were born to him in Jerusalem. Here are four names of his kids, Shemua, Shobab, Nathan, and Solomon. So I show you this chart, not so that you can make out all the names. I just want you to see a bunch of names. Welcome to David's wives and kids. So the first four I just read to you, I'll show you where we find them. Can you see David on the top right? You drop down and it says he married Bathsheba on the right of the screen. And then if you drop down, uh, there are four sons that we just read about. You know about Solomon. And there are three others. And then if you look to the left side of the screen, it'll say David's other wives. Look at all these kids. 
they bore. And those are the names that are listed here in 2 Samuel 5, verses 15 and 16. Lots and lots of wives and concubines and kids and folks. That's not good. So I know David is referred to in the Bible as a man after God's own heart. He wrote magnificent psalms. He was a great and godly leader, and yet he was thoroughly imperfect, just as everyone in this room is. In fact, we is the only kind of people God has at his disposal to work with, flawed and imperfect men and women. Only Jesus is the perfect one. So I want to give you just a quick survey. I found this little interesting chart of the kinds of people God has used, just in case you think he can never use me. I'm just a I'm a sinner. I'm a flawed and imperfect person. Yeah, well, uh, he used Thomas, who was a doubter, and uh, he used Jacob, who was a cheater. Uh, uh, Jonah was disobedient. Um, Sarah was impatient. Peter had a temper. David, who we're reading about, was an adulterer. Abraham was a liar. Now, why did they put this one in here? I don't what in the world is that supposed to prove right there? We're going to skip that one. There's nothing biblical, valuable about that. It's ridiculous. What the heck is that in there for? Paul was a murderer. Lazarus was dead. God used all of these people. Look at here. Uh, don't think God will ever give up on you or that serving him is an opportunity that has passed you by. Look, if there's a pattern of sin... Admit it. That's called confession. Turn from it. That's called repentance. Don't beg for forgiveness if you're a Christian. Just thank God for forgiving you. Get back with the program. He intends to be glorified through flawed human beings like you and I. And this list of flawed human beings ought to encourage us uh, to continue serving the Lord. Now, verse 17, when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel. All the Philistines went up to seek out David. And when David heard of it, he went down to the stronghold. So the Philistines find out, holy moly, David, the guy who hung out with us, remember when he ran into Philistine territory to run away from Saul? David is getting stronger. We have to deal with him while we still have an opportunity. David knows our secrets. He knows our materiel, our supplies, our resources, our strategy. He knows how many people are in our army. David's a threat. So they decide quite wisely, we got to extinguish David. So verse 18, the Philistines came and spread themselves out in the valley of Rephaim. I'll give you an idea where it is. Again, you see the Dead Sea on the right. If you go left uh, and up from the Dead Sea a little bit, you see Jerusalem. And then right to the left of Jerusalem, the valley of Rephaim. It's about two miles from Jerusalem. It's a, it's a steep valley. It's kind of like a cavern. So it's a good place for a war. And so that's where the Philistines go. And verse 19, David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up against the Philistines? Will you give them into my hand? And the Lord said to David, Go up, for I will certainly give the Philistines into your hand. David did this often. He often inquired of the Lord. We've seen it in 1 Samuel. We will see it in 2 Samuel. Before 
battle, David inquired of the Lord. Now, here's the sad thing. I wish he inquired of the Lord before he kept taking on these wives and concubines and all these women. He didn't inquire of the Lord there. Once again, his focus of attention was on stuff outside the home. That's where men get their satisfaction, too much of that. So David was very faithful to seek God's will before going out to war, but he did not seek God's will with regard to what was going on at at home. Well, anyway, God tells him, indeed, go up against the Philistines. I'm going to give them into your hands. So verse 20, David came to a place called Baal Perazim and defeated them there. And he said, the Lord has broken through my enemies before me like the breakthrough of waters. Therefore, he named that place Baal Perazim. Folks, the phrase means the Lord who breaks through or the Lord of breakthroughs. Now, don't get confused. Usually when you see the word Baal, you associate it, uh, that term with a false god of the Canaanites. You know, but the term Baal means Lord or master, Lord or master. Baal Perazim means the Lord of breakthrough. Uh, David, again, had the odds against him. The Philistines uh, could make iron products. They had chariots uh, and all kinds of weaponry. And yet, Baal Perazim, the Lord broke through. Could I encourage you, no matter what your situation is like, don't let it define your identity. Let Baal Perazim, let the Lord, let the God of breakthroughs define your identity. You may be in an employment situation that is oppressive or have none at all. You may have kids on the run from God. You may have just received a cancer diagnosis or a loved one perhaps has. I'm not saying those are things to ignore and be unaffected by. That's not real. However, don't let those things call the shots because the God who redeemed you has the capacity to break through all of those things. A diagnosis is just the best attempt of the medical community to describe your present pathology. But the great physician is not limited to those diagnoses. Your financial, vocational, employment, familial situation may be overwhelming. You may be stuck in the valley of Rephaim. You're in a valley surrounded by high walls that you cannot surmount. But God is Baal Perazim. He's the God of breakthroughs. And so don't be thinking, this is my lot in life. There's no way through and there's no way out. It's just not true. So verse 21, they... Philistines abandoned their idols there, so David and his men carried them away. What did they do with them? Well, First Chronicles fourteen twelve tells us they burned them with fire. That's a good thing. They don't want to take the Philistine idols and hand them out to others, so they burn them. They destroy them. And by the way, this is what it seems to me as Christians we ought to desire people doing today. That is abandoning their idols because they say they see Christ in us, the hope of glory. They let go of idols like these. These are Canaanite deities, every one of them. They're idols fashioned by man. Folks would carry them around as good luck charms to provide magic. They'd pray to them. They'd feed them. They do all kinds of things to to them so that these things would do good things for them. 
Well, David and his men succeeded in getting the Philistines to leave all this stuff behind, and then they burned them. And that's our job. Our job is to so live the dynamic Christian life that people are jealous of a living Savior in us, and they let go. Now, most people today we run into don't worship idols like this, but they worship idols of different kinds, fame, fortune, all the rest. And uh, it's our job to be uh, in their midst and living out the Christian life and give them evidences and glimpses of what it is to have a vibrant personal relationship with the living Savior so that they voluntarily give up those gods. A guy told me one time, if you have a vicious dog chewing on a bone, it's dried up, it's not good. You want to give him a good meaty bone, a juicy bone. Well, you can't reach in there and try to take away the old bone. That dog will bite your hand off. Instead, you want to wave in front of him this new juicy meaty bone so that he voluntarily gives up his old bone. Now, that's the onus of responsibility on us. We can go out there and criticize the world and get angry and cynical and ugly like we're prone to do to try to get people to give up their old bones. They'd just bite off our hand. A better thing to do is to be so filled with God's spirit that he's so real in us. They see something in us they don't have, and they ask us questions about the hope that is in us. That's what got me saved. I was in the military barracks, and I saw a guy, and he had it together. There was just something about this guy. He took an interest in our the lives of everyone else in the barracks. He was always pleasant and all the rest. He was just the most, he was just a likable guy. I mean, I just, as a good pre-evangelism technique is to be a nice person. That doesn't hurt. He would remember name. He remembered my name. I met him two days prior. Two days later, he said, hey, Stuart, how's it going? Man, that is like some dynamic pre-evangelism right there. Remember somebody's name. And we just hung out, and I got to watch his life. I thought he discovered some wonder drug I didn't know about. I would have chosen anything at that time, to tell you the truth. I was already dabbling in a bunch of stuff to try to find peace and joy. One time, I kind of exploded. He was waving in front of me this new juicy bone. He had life. The Bible calls it abundant life. I didn't know that's what it was called. And I asked him one time. This was a pretty deep theological question. I said, hey, man, what makes you tick? And then I said to him, have you discovered some drug I don't know about? That was my quest for God right there. And he said, no, no, it's no drug. He said, let me tell you my story. Notice he didn't use words only Christians know. Let me share my testimony. What does that mean to a non, an unsaved people? Folks, we got to speak their language. He said, let me tell you my story. Let me tell you what happened to me. And he shared his testimony with me. And uh, a few days later, I accepted well, his Christ, but I wanted his Christ to be my Christ and Savior. That was September 5th, 1973. Folks, uh, he got me to give up my idols. It was drugs. It was alcohol. It was a bunch of other stuff I don't need to talk about anymore. There were, uh, an idol is anything you lean on to meet the needs only God can meet. And so it, was, it wasn't his preaching, tell you the truth. And he didn't take me to church. Isn't that a, You know, sometimes we're taking people to church too soon. Do you know church is not for unsaved people? Am I missing something? Church is where we go to romance God. Unsaved people don't have that relation. I'm not saying unsaved people can't come, and we ought to always be sensitive to them, but I want to bring them to the Lord, not to church. Church is sometimes the worst place to bring people. They don't understand what we're doing. They don't like our songs and all this kind of, and our procedures, and we use vocabulary to make any sense to them. We talk to them about the Lord's Supper, and man, there's no food at all. It's just a little thimble full of who knows what. 
we cause them to stop. So, so I think sometimes we prematurely bring people to church. I think you ought to hang out. Give them a chance to see Christ in you, the hope of glory. Well, that's what my friend, that's what my friend did. It was months after we our friendship that he uh, brought me to church and explained to me how how church operates and all that other. Anyway, David succeeded in getting the Philistines to give up their idols. So, verse twenty-two. The Philistines came up once again and spread themselves out in the valley of Raphaim. Now, this really frustrates me. When are these Philistines going to go away? They come up again for crying out loud. They just never give up. And neither does our enemy, Satan. He just doesn't give up. The evil one comes against us in painful times. But the evil one also comes up against us in peaceful times. The evil one prowls about like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And what is he going to stop? His time will come to an end when his time comes to an end. But until his time comes to an end, he's alive and well on planet Earth, and he's seeking to devour ones like you and I. In fact, I think he's turning up the burner for crying out loud because I think he knows his time is short. Now, this leads me to this. Uh, how how are we going to defend ourselves against the against against Satan? Well, the Bible talks about weapons of warfare, and uh, you can read about those on your own in Ephesians six. But this one is important. We have to hang out together because the Bible says He's looking to pick us off one at a time. It's a little hard to get picked off in a crowd. Now I'll admit something to you, even though I'm one of the ministers in this fine church. There are lots of times I don't want to come here. Man, the alarm goes off. You got to get up in the morning. You got to put on clothes and, and you got to get out. It's a rainy day. And you know you're going to hang out with people, some of whom you don't like. Let's just face it. Some, there's some in here. I'll, I'll point you out. No. I mean, it's just the way it is, even for ministers. Too bad. What happens when you come? And sometimes you come to church and say, crying out loud, that place is like an icebox. Who set the temperature in that? You know, we go through that. Or you go into the service, and it's not the one of your choice, choice, and you're hearing songs. You say, what in the world? Can that drummer play any louder? You know, you go through all this kind of stuff. And then you sit next to someone, and you thought you were being plenty friendly to them, and they acted like you had leprosy or something. They don't return your greeting. What's, I mean, you go through all this stuff, and you bail out. Well, all that stuff is real and happens, but don't bail out. We need each other. We don't have to like each other. Did you know that? There's no commandment in the Bible that says thou shalt like each other because God does not command us to do stuff we cannot do. So that's not the deal. But he does command us to hang out with one another because together we're a stronger community that can resist the wiles of the devil. We hold each other accountable. Our value system is biblical and uplifted. We call each other to task. We pray for one another. So folks... Church is important. Christians who say, I can have Jesus without going to church, yeah, they sort of can. You don't get saved in the church. You get saved by the Savior. I got that. But I don't think you can have a victorious, triumphant Christian life without hanging out with others in the faith community. God called us out and in to this new thing called the church. It doesn't have to be this particular one, but if it's not this one, then you've got to find one, and you've got to stick with it. And by the way, this one is as good as any you're going to find. They're all imperfect because they're all made up of imperfect people, just like the one you saw today in the mirror. So you can go on a quest all you want for that perfect church, but it doesn't exist. Just hanging out together with one another where core values 
are biblical and are uplifted helps us to resist the evil one who's seeking to devour us. Okay, so when David inquired of the Lord, he said, the Lord said, you shall not go directly up. Circle around behind them and come at them in front of the balsam trees. So what's up with that? Same enemy. David inquires of the Lord a second time. God tells him something different the second time. That's why we have to keep seeking God's will, even for the same situation. You can't make God's will a formula, a mechanical, a standard. He wants us to keep seeking him. The first time, God said, here's my will, front attack, go after him. Second time, God said, do not attack him from the front, come around from behind. So whatever your situation is, get counsel. But make sure (laughs) you're making the final decision, not somebody else for you. Get counsel about your job, about your kids, and about maybe a recent cancer diagnosis. Get counsel. There's a lot of wisdom in this church about those things. But the approach to cancer that someone has chosen need not be yours. God's will is not standard in those particular areas of Christian liberty. Use your head. Seek counsel. Seek God's will and make a decision to the best of your ability. But don't put God in the box. Oh, well, this person did such and such. Therefore, I should do such and such. No, no, no. Everybody's different. You have a personal relationship. So verse 24, it shall be, God tells David, when you hear the sound of marching in the tops of the balsam trees. I don't know what that means. Sound of marching in trees. Some say it was an angelic host, an army of angels, signaling to David it's time to go beat up on the Philistines. I don't know what that means. But anyway, when you hear that, God said, act promptly, for the Lord will have gone out before you to strike the Philistines. So David did so, just as the Lord had commanded him, and he struck down the Philistines from Geba. That's probably Gibeon, not Geba, as far as Gezer. So you can see these places on the map. Well, let me point out some stuff again. There's Jerusalem. Baal Perazim, which we spoke about, the Lord of Breakthroughs, is just to the south. Gibeon is above Jerusalem. If you go from Gibeon to the left, to Gezer, that's where David, that's how far David pursued the Philistines. It's about 20 miles. In other words, he really beat the tar out of them. He chased them back into Philistine territory. It was a humiliating defeat for the Philistines. Okay. As we draw to a close, let me just point this out. God chose his king, his anointed one, David. And he left it up to people, even in this chapter, to decide on what their response is going to be to God's anointed king. There's only two responses, accept or reject God's anointed king. Now, the Israelites accepted God's king, but the Jebusites rejected him. Hiram, king of Tyre, accepted God's king, but the Philistines rejected him. Those who accepted God's king were blessed. Those who rejected God's king were defeated. They were crushed. So the key question all of us must answer with regard to God's chosen king is this. What is your response? We're reading about King David But the ultimate son of David is King Jesus. He plays a much more significant role than did King David. King David is only a foreshadowing of King Jesus, son of God, son of man. We refer to him as Messiah, and Messiah means anointed one. Jesus, the Messiah, the anointed one by his father. 
our decision is simple. Do we accept the father's designation of his son as King Jesus or not? Of him, the father said, this is my beloved son with whom I am well pleased. So the father anointed him, put his stamp of approval on him, sent him here on a mission. It was a mission, an excruciating mission. It was to suffer and die on the cross. The father vindicated the son by giving him life after death. It's the resurrection. Furthermore, then, the son ascended to be seated. That's where he is right now, at the right hand of the father. That's the place of power and honor and highest authority. Now, I'm glad you're here today, though it's raining and all that stuff, but you don't get points just for showing up. You can't do that. Make sure you've rendered the right response to God's Messiah, God's anointed king. It's either, yes, I accept you, Jesus. No, I reject you. There's no middle ground. You can't have an intellectual awareness of who Jesus is and think that's enough. You can't be a member of this church and think that's enough. You can't sing in the choir and think that's all it takes. What's your response to King Jesus? Do you accept him or reject him? We'll close with this passage with which you're familiar, I'll bet. First John chapter 5, verses 11 to 13. This is the testimony. God has given us eternal life. The gift is already given. He doesn't have to be petitioned for it. God has given us eternal life. Well, where do you find it? In whom is it contained? This life is in his son. There it is. One stop shopping. You want eternal life and all that's involved? Run to Jesus. God gave us eternal life. This life is in his son. And then uh, this verse describes two groups of people. He who has the son, that's one group. Well, they have the life, eternal life. He who does not have the Son, that's the second group, shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. And then we read, believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know you have eternal life. I beg you, make sure you've rendered the right response to King Jesus. When we stand before God the Father, he's not going to ask us, what would you do for your job? How's your stock portfolio? How many kids did you produce or not produce? How's your lawn? Do you got a good edge on your lawn? You know, whatever the deal. Were you athletic? What, what are your successes and accomplishments? No, you know what he's going to say? What was your response to my son? That's it. What do you mean, Father? Did you accept him or did you reject him? You say, oh, no, I've accepted him. Gain entrance into my kingdom forevermore. No, I've rejected him. Why did you reject him? Well, I never heard. Not true. I gave you evidence. You didn't respond to the evidence I gave you. I'm not going to impose upon you in heaven what you refused on earth. You didn't want to acknowledge my son Jesus on earth. I won't, I won't put him in your face in heaven. I'll give you what you want. Go from me throughout eternity. What's your response to the anointed king, the anointed king Jesus? Accept or reject. I beg you, make sure it's the right response. Those in this chapter who accepted King David did well. Those who rejected him perished. No need for anyone here to perish. Lord Jesus, thank you for everything you've done. Thank you for the biblical record. It's not just history. It's applicable to us today. Thank you for showing us yourself even through King David. You, the greater son of David, King Jesus, came also. You were a established and exalted for the sake of the Father's people, those who would believe on you. And I pray without exception that would be the case with everyone in this room. And this we pray in Jesus' name, amen.
Hey, well, God bless you folks. Look at this. We finished one minute before quitting time. Thank you so much. Uh, Lord willing, we'll see you next week. We'll be in the next chapter.